And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. And if you don't, we do have our scripture text on the screen for you. On this Christmas day, we're finishing up Matthew's uh, account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about Herod and the wise men and focused on the wise men and them bearing their gifts to the baby Jesus. And now we read of what happens after the wise men come. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Hear then, church, the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that was spoken by the prophet, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we praise you this Christmas morning for the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you. And it's with great joy that we sing of his birth and sing of his coming because without it, we'd be lost. Without it, we'd have no hope. Without it, we would be doomed to destruction. But with his birth, with his coming, we have great hope that all that has gone wrong is being turned around, that the curse is being reversed, that sins are being forgiven because they've been placed upon him, that you are redeeming a people unto yourself. So help us, Lord, to live in the reality of that truth. And we pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, last week, if you were here, we asked the question, how do the Magi fit into the Christmas story? And of course, for many of us, they fit in the Christmas story because we remember when we were kids reading about the three wise men who came to Jesus with their gifts. But when you look closer and you think about that story, it really is odd. There are odd characters to fit into the birth of Christ because the Magi were, there were foreigners to Israel. They were astrologers. We could even call them magicians. And in the story of the birth of Jew, the Jewish Messiah, it doesn't seem that they would fit in. So we ask that question, how, how do they fit into the, to the Christmas story? Well, this week we might, uh, we've, we've read the text and we might ask questions right along that same lines. We might ask questions like, how does an escape to Egypt fit into the Christmas story? You know, how does 
a young family on the run for their, the life of their baby boy fit into the Christmas story. Or even more perplexing than that, when we think about Christmas and you think about all that goes along with Christmas, how does the slaughter of innocent babies in Bethlehem fit in? You know, try and find that part in the Christmas story in a, in a, in a children's book. Or try to find that part of the Christmas story in a Christmas song. Or in an Advent preaching series, right? I mean, Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, maybe we'll include that. But Rachel weeping for her children? Does that fit in our Advent series? No thanks. And especially not on Christmas Day, right? It doesn't exactly fit the Christmas spirit. Normally when we think about Christmas, we think glad tidings of great joy, right? Even for the world outside the church, Christmas is, it's the season to be what? It's the season to be jolly. It's meant to be a time that's filled with happiness, filled with warmth and good feelings. Now, there's an important distinction between the two, but it's easy to get them confused. Christmas is about glad tidings of great joy for all people. Why? Because Christ the Lord, our Savior of the world, has come. But celebrating that is not the same as setting aside a yearly tradition of feeling, we could say feeling warm and happy inside, while it's cold and nasty outside. You know, Christians today often warn of the dangers of materialism stealing away the true meaning of Christmas. You've heard that before. You've heard Christians warn you, other Christians warn you of materialism stealing away the true meaning of Christmas. I think perhaps we need a different warning. We need to be warned of Sentimental, uh, sen sen sentimentalism stealing Christmas away. Given to that idea that, that Christ Christmas is really about just warm sentiments, warm feelings, then you certainly won't understand how the rest of Matthew's story of the birth of Christ fits in. You certainly won't understand how the slaughter of, of uh, innocent children at Bethlehem fits into the Christmas story. Given to the, into the idea that Christmas is about sentiments, and you'll fail to see how the Christmas story is still glad tidings of great joy, even for those who weep at Christmas time. Even in the midst of a broken world with nasty tyrants like Herod, psychopathic killers, unfaithful husbands, tragic accidents, body-destroying diseases, right, chronic illnesses, the loss of loved ones. But thankfully, the Christmas of Scripture is not primarily about warm sentiments. It's the story of glad tidings of great joy to a world that was shrouded and is in some ways still shrouded in darkness, sorrow, and death. And that's why if you want a full understanding of Christmas, Rachel weeping for her children must actually fit into that story. The butchering of baby boys in Bethlehem with the sparing of the Christ child who would save his people from their sins is just as much a part of the story as the angels or the shepherds or the magi are. And so the question then is, what clues does Matthew give us to the meaning of this all? You know, because Matthew is giving us a historical account, so in one sense, he's just telling us the story of what happened when Jesus was a baby, right? But in another sense, he's doing more than that. He's telling his readers why it all matters, what it all means. And specifically, he's, Matthew, we've talked about this before, Matthew is speaking to his, a Jewish audience. 
And so he, what he's doing is he's connecting the dots between the events surrounding the birth of Christ and the Old Testament scriptures. Now, most of you know this, but Jesus didn't just show up in the middle of history with no prior divine revelation. No, the, the coming of the Son of God was foretold in the Old Testament. And so we could say there was a lot of backstory that led up to the coming of Christ. So in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Matthew, you find Matthew quoting and alluding to the Old Testament and saying that this or that happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Or in some cases, he says, this is what happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And this was to show his readers that Jesus was indeed the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. That the prophecies concerning the Messiah were, in fact, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Matthew's doing something else, and we're going to talk about this a little later on. He's showing his readers how the story of the Messiah is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Matthew's showing, in particular in the last part of chapter 2 that I just read, he's showing his readers how the story of the Messiah is the fulfillment of the story of God's people. No, that's, that part is a little bit more challenging for us to understand. Now, one, one example of how Matthew's connecting the dots between Jesus and the Old Testament is that he tells the story of Christ's birth in Bethlehem as the fulfillment of the prophecy that this is where the Messiah was to be born. And we read that, we might not think it's that important, but it was important because many Jews at the time didn't know the story of Christ's birth, and they assumed that Jesus was born in Nazareth. Do you know why they assumed he was born in Nazareth? Well, think about it. How was, how was Jesus known? What was the name he went by? Well, you, you, we, we often say our last names. They didn't say their last names. They would say their first name and then where they were from. So Jesus was known as Jesus of Bethlehem? No. Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Why was he known as Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's because he grew up in Nazareth. And so do you know what a lot of Jews assumed? A lot of Jews assumed that he was born in Nazareth because he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. So do you see what Matthew is doing as he gives this account? If he was born in Bethlehem, how was it that he came from Nazareth? How was it that he was known as Jesus of Nazareth? Well, this account answers that question. Jesus' parents fled Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets foretold, as the prophet Micah foretold. Then his parents had to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt. And when they returned, they ended up settling in Nazareth because they didn't want to come back to, to Judea. They went to, back to Galilee because in Judea, Herod's son was still ruling in Herod's place. Now, one of the challenges that we have in the last part of chapter 2 is that Matthew makes connections to the Old Testament in ways that we're not accustomed to. So, when we think about something in the New Testament as being fulfilled of something in the Old Testament, we generally think of straightforward prophecies, like Isaiah 7.14. Matthew quotes that after the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary is with child by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we read of the angel's announcement to Joseph, and then Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah 7, 14, he quotes then, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's a straightforward prophecy being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. 
Now, it's much the same in chapter 2 when, when the scribes tell Herod that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote the prophet Micah, who foretold that a special ruler would come who would be born in Bethlehem. So we get that because it's straightforward, it's simple. But the connections that Matthew makes to the Old Testament, as we see here in our text this morning, are not limited to the direct upfront prophecies about the facts of Jesus' birth. He also makes connections that demonstrate the convergence of themes and events within the story of Israel and then in the story of the Messiah. And what he's doing is he is telling the story of Christ, Jesus, to his Jewish audience who were very familiar with their own history in a way that shows that Jesus is their Messiah and is actually the centerpiece and the culmination of their history. By God's design, there's this rich typology between the life of Christ and the life and the story of Israel. The story of Israel and the story of Christ. And it's meant to show that Jesus truly is the Messiah of God and that the story of God's people find its full and final resolve in Jesus Christ. So let's let's look at this passage that we just read. There, There are three paragraphs in this section, and we're actually only going to look at the first two this morning. But notice that each paragraph in the section that I read ends with Matthew confirming that what happened in the early days of Christ was a fulfillment of what was spoken. So we'll name the first two paragraphs, Jesus and the Exodus, and then Jesus and the exile, and finally, uh, um, number three, we're just gonna connect the dots. We, We might call it Jesus and our story. So let's look first at Jesus and the Exodus, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So in this paragraph, we're told that for a second time, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Came to Joseph in in the dream before the child was born, and now after the child is born, Jesus is born. An angel comes to Joseph in a dream. And this time, the angel comes to warn Joseph of Herod's intent and to command him to take Jesus and his mother and flee to Egypt until he is told to return. So again, Joseph, just like the first time the angel comes to Joseph, Joseph is called to act in faith. As Mary's husband and the adopted father of Jesus, God has given Joseph the responsibility to lead and protect his family. That's what God calls all husbands and fathers to. And Joseph is a good example of a godly man, a man who does that well. And in this case, that meant getting his family out of Dodge, right, and fleeing to Egypt. So Joseph listens to the angel, he obeys God, and then Mary submits to her husband as her husband leads them, and they journey south to Egypt, which was about 75 miles or so south, southwest of where, where they were. Now, going that far from Judea may sound a little excessive to us, but this is what God told them, and, this, and there were practical reasons for this. For one, in Egypt... 
they were outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So they're completely outside of Herod's, juris Herod's jurisdiction in Egypt. And for two, there was a substantial population of Jews there in Egypt at the time. So it was a place where they likely would have been able to find a place to stay. But it wasn't just for practical reasons that God commanded Joseph to take his family to Egypt. Verse 15 says that they remained there until the death of Herod. And then in reference to their return from Egypt, Matthew says this. He says, this was to fulfill what, this what, was, what had been spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that phrase comes from Hosea, the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And to give us some background on the prophet Isaiah, he spoke to God's people shortly before the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Assyria. And in this chapter, Hosea is recalling God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt, which had happened long before they go into captivity in Assyria. Um, so he's speaking of God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt. It was the event that was the beginning of Israel as an independent nation. And here's how chapter 11 begins. He says, when Israel was a child, so the prophet is speaking to Israel just, about, just before they're about to be taken into captivity. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Speaking of God's great rescue of Israel out of Egypt. And then listen, the more they were called, this is verse two, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So what is the prophet doing? He's reminding God's people of how when they were in the childhood stage of, of being a nation, God called them out of Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt and God called them out. But then he goes on to tell them of how despite God's call upon them, his adoption of them as his son, his deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt, Despite all of that, Israel still chased after false gods, other gods. And then Hosea says that because they kept chasing after false gods, they will go back into captivity. But toward the end of the chapter, there's this unexpected turn in Hosea. And God promises to restore his people again and return them to his home or to their home. Now what's happening here? And how can Matthew apply what Hosea spoke of with this event in the childhood of Jesus Christ? Uh, what does all this have to do with Jesus going in and out of Egypt, right? Well, the answer is, God is repeating the history of his people in the life of his son, Jesus. God's repeating the history of his people in the life of Egypt, or, uh, in the life of, life of Jesus, just as God led his son, Israel, into Egypt and then called them out of Egypt, so he is done with the Messiah. And that future restoration of Israel that Hosea spoke of is happening in this man, Jesus Christ. The, the story of Jesus as a baby being led into Egypt and then back out again is not just a series of unfortunate events. It's the history of Israel. It's the history. So when the Jews are reading this, they say, look, what they're supposed to see is, look, this is your history. Your story is being retold, and it's being retold in the one man, in the true Son of God, who is fulfilling God's promise of restoration. So you see, Jesus is shown to be the Messiah. Why? Because he's living the very story of God's people. 
Just as Israel went into Egypt, so did he. And just as God called them out of Egypt, so he has called Jesus out of Egypt. And yet, unlike Israel, Jesus proves to be the faithful son, the one who will be the light to the nations as they were meant to be, but failed because they worshiped other gods. Now, by the way, this theme continues in Matthew. If you just go to chapter four, skip a chapter, go up to chapter four, what happens in the beginning of chapter four? Do you remember what happens in Matthew four? Jesus is led into the wilderness. And how long is he in the wilderness for? 40 days, why 40 days? Why not 10, why not 15, why not 20, why not 42? I'll tell you why. It was the fulfillment of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And what you're to see as you read that story is unlike Israel, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he passes the test. He honors his father by trusting and obeying his every word, unlike Israel. Now, New Testament scholar G.K. Beale makes a helpful observation that what is happening here in Matthew's gospel is much like the connection that the apostle Paul makes between Adam and Christ. In order to reverse the consequences of Adam's failure, there needed to be what? There needed to be another Adam. And so likewise here, with the first exodus and the following disobedience of Israel, it has to be reversed by another exodus of a better and truer son. In the first case, the people of God were rescued from death and slavery only to go back into it by way of false worship. But where the first son failed, the second son has succeeded. And with this, Matthew is presenting Jesus himself as the new Israel. God's people are going to be restored and even redefined in this man, Jesus Christ. The very identity of God's people is being established in Christ himself, the true son of God, the true Israel. Which is why we find out as we read the rest of the New Testament that to be part of God's people is not a matter of one's uh, physical connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, it's a matter of one's relationship to Jesus Christ the true son of God, the true Israel. So out of Egypt, I called my son. God has been telling this story for centuries. All that happened to Israel in the Old Testament was by God's sovereign plan. And Matthew is showing us that it all converges on this baby born in Bethlehem. So the story of Israel finds its resolve in the story of Jesus, their Messiah. So then we come to Jesus and the exile, verse 16. What of this next paragraph? Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this section goes back in the story a bit to narrate what happened in Bethlehem after Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled to Egypt. Herod proves himself to be as terrible and as wicked as we feared. He could have built a hundred temples dedicated to Yahweh and none of them would have made up for this heinous act of evil. 
It's another example of why the world is in such a desperate need of a righteous savior king, a king whose rule would not be exercised by the taking of innocent lives, but by the giving up of his own innocent life for the sake of his people. Well, as Herod is conspiring against God and against his anointed, there's this terrible consequence, the slaughter of all the children under the age two in the town of Bethlehem and in that region. And again, Matthew tells us here that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament story. This time, Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, Jeremiah came after Hosea and he spoke to the nation of Judah around the time that Judah went into captivity in Babylon. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah tells of the sorrow of God's people as they're led into exile in Babylon. And he does so in verse 15 of that chapter. And Jeremiah speaks in poetic fashion of Rachel weeping for her children as they are going into captivity in Babylon. Now you'll remember Rachel was Jacob's wife. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jeremiah spoke of the sorrow of God's people traveling from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It was such a painful experience that he describes it as causing the long deceased mother of Israel to weep for her children in her grave as they're being taken away from their home. As they were, some of them were slaughtered and some of them were taken away from their home and into captivity in Babylon. Now this happened some 600 years before Christ came and 70 years after they were taken into captivity in Babylon, there was a return from exile back to the promised land. But here in Matthew, he is comparing that sorrow with the sorrow that accompanied the events of the exile of Christ as a small child. Now, I'll admit, it's not the sort of connection we're used to. When we read that and we go, Matthew, what do you mean this is in fulfillment of? How does this fulfill that? But you see, part of what Matthew's getting at here is something that would have been known to his audience that may not be known to us about this text that he reads from Jeremiah, or that he quotes from Jeremiah. And that is that while the verses he quotes seem to be in and of themselves hopeless, their context in Jeremiah 31 is rich with God's promise of restoration of his people. In fact, the majority, if you go and you read Jeremiah 31, the majority of that chapter is about that. It's about God's restoration of his people. So in Jeremiah 31, while you do have the sorrow and the pain of the Babylonian exile experience, there is along with it God's reassurance to his people of his love and his plan to redeem them and his plan to restore them. Basically, the message of the chapter is, though in this time you feel completely hopeless, though in this time you feel like all is lost, you feel the weight of that sorrow, don't fear, God is going to have mercy on you. He is going to restore you. This is what Jeremiah says right after the verse that Matthew quotes in verse 17 of Jeremiah 31. He says, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own country. All the rest of the chapter focuses on this theme of God returning, God restoring his people, of him turning their mourning into joy, giving them gladness for their sorrow. And it ends with the promise of a new covenant in which God's going to write his law on his people's hearts. And he's, he says he's going to remember their sins no more. So back to, back to Matthew's quote, quotation of this text. When Matthew says that the events 
around the exile of Jesus was a fulfillment of this passage. He isn't just saying, look, there was grief then and there's grief now. There was sorrow then and there's sorrow now. No, he's saying that just as that grief wasn't the end for Israel back then, so this grief in Bethlehem is not the end. Their exile was accompanied with grief, just as Jesus' exile to Egypt was accompanied by grief and sorrow. Yet as God had spoken through Jeremiah, there was coming a day when the exile went ahead and all of the sorrow that accompanied that exile and the true fulfillment of their return from exile was in this child whose story was completing their own story. What they're to see is we're coming full circle now. This this promised child born in Bethlehem would grow up to be the one who was going to put an end to the weeping of Rachel once and for all. This is the child who was going to put an end to the sorrow of God's people. He was the king who would finally put an end to the exile. The one who would end the cycle of sorrow, sin, and death. So you see their flight to Egypt when Jesus was just a baby. The sorrow of God's people over the devastating effects of evil and sin and death. All of it fits into the Christmas story because it all reveals how God is resolving the story of his people in the coming of Jesus Christ. As you read on in the Gospel of Matthew, you find out that this isn't just true for Israel. Jesus isn't just the resolve of Israel's story. He's the resolve of the story of the world. The exile that began all the way back with Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden was in his coming finally being put to an end. He's come to reconcile men and women back to God, to put an end to sin and evil and sorrow that all the sin has brought upon this world. As as I heard Tom Riley recently put it, the end of evil begins at Christmas. And for all those who pledge allegiance to him as their Savior King, Jesus is the one who actually redeems our broken stories. Just like he did with Israel's story. He's the one that makes sense of our story. When you look back and we go, I cannot make sense of it. Jesus is the one who is going to make sense of it in the end. He's the one who is going to redeem it in the end. Now, sometimes it's hard to see that when we're in the midst of it, while, while sin and sickness and death are still at work in our lives and, and in this world. But in the Christmas story, we're giving glad tidings of great joy that our Redeemer has come. And that everything that happened to him, even the things that happened to him when he was just a young child, when he was just a baby, happened by the sovereign plan of God that he might be the perfect Savior of an imperfect people. You know, because just like Israel failed in their place, we failed in ours. Jesus is the one who stood not just in their place. Jesus is the one who doesn't just redeem their story, but he stands in our place and he redeems ours. And unlike Israel and unlike us, he stood in our place and he succeeded. And because he did, because he faced the things that they faced, because he faced the things that we faced, and yet acted in perfect righteousness and did so for our sake, our story doesn't end in Egypt. It doesn't end in exile. It doesn't end in death and sorrow. It ends in rescue, restoration, and joy. 
And the more that we grow to know him now, the more we experience the reality of those things in our lives as we long for and wait for the day of his second advent when his story finally completes ours. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you even for the hard text of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the end of Matthew 2. We thank you for how it shows us that Jesus fulfills the story of Israel and even redeems and fulfills our story. We thank you that we have this wonderful hope this Christmas, not just the pretending that sorrow isn't there, that death isn't there, not just warm sentiments, but the reality of Jesus Christ and him coming to put an end to sin and sorrow and death. We thank you that we have this wonderful hope this Christmas and we ask that you would assure our hearts of it and cause us to sing with joy because of the coming of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.